Welcome to Across the Pond, a Christian commentary on the way of Jesus in the world today with the co-founders of Red Letter Christians, Dr. Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. Red Letter Christians gets its name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red, and we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. Some episodes of this podcast have been adapted from our radio show, Across the Pond, which airs on Sunday afternoons in the UK on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. Let's jump into this week's episode with Shane Claiborne. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne, and the name of the show is Across the Pond. I am so excited that you could join me today, um, and I'm more excited than usual because I've got one of my really great friends and uh, one of the most powerful leaders uh, over here on this side of the pond in the United States, Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, she is going to be my conversation partner today, and you may know of her work. She's written a lot of great books. Uh, Lisa, I think the first book I read of yours was The Very Good Gospel, but you also wrote a book about how um, evangelicals are, what, what was the name of that one? Uh, not, not a- <laughs> that's, my, that's okay. Hello, everybody. <laughs> my very first book was Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat. And then after that was Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith in Politics, yeah. Um, you know, and then forgive us book, which is, that was is a good one. Yeah. Us. Yeah. And we did that. We did that still favorite. evangelical with a big question mark. Yeah. Oh, yes. Contributed yes. to that one. And right. we, yeah. Lisa has been a board member of red letter Christians for a while. And we've done all kinds of stuff together, uh, co-hosting things with, uh, freedom road. And, but this new book is really special. Uh, all your books are special, but this one, uh, the, the subtitle, you guys got to hear this is, so the book, the name of the book is Fortune, and we're going to talk about where it gets its name. But um, mm-hmm. the subtitle is How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lisa, this book is, you, I think you said it was 30 years in the making because you've been studying your your family and the effect of, you know, racism and white supremacy. And in some ways it's a, it really is like creative nonfiction, right? It's telling the story of your family, but really as a microcosm and a mirror to the world. Um, yes. So tell us a little bit more about the book. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it was 30 years of research and it, that research began in around 1990 um, when I uh, was talking with my mom on the phone and we, we began to craft our family tree and, you know, at that point, she didn't share with me the names on the family tree, or at least I didn't write them down. Um, all that I had on my tree, and I still have it, um, was just grandpa born this date, died this date, great grandpa born this date, in all on her father's, we just followed her father's, father's, father's line, which actually reveals to me how patriarchal we were as a family. I'm like, wow, yeah. like so many assumptions were made about the importance of the father's lines and mother's lines came much later. And we realized how much I mean, my gosh, like the real gold <laughs> was yeah, actually yeah. on their lines. Um, but ultimately, the book traces um, 10 generations of my family back to 1682. And in order for us to understand America better, hmm. because we can understand, um, we, we see the impact of the laws and policies and norms of those days that were passed at that time on those people's lives and every generation that came afterwards. Mm -hmm. And the book ends in the last three chapters with three chapters, three essays on what what it will take to repair what race broke in the world. 
So you you travel from Fortune, my very first ancestor. Yeah, tell us a little bit about Fortune, because that's where you get the name. Yeah, the title of the book, Fortune. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Fortune was the very first ancestor born on American soil and um, in my family. Um, she was born in, eight, in 1687 to, mm-hmm. um, to an Irish immigrant, actually an, an Ulster Scott immigrant, who was an indentured servant and an enslaved man named um, named Sambo, who was from Senegal. Um, we know he was from Senegal because his name is a Wolof name, um, and it means second son. Mm-hmm. He was brought here in 1686, Maudlin in 1682. They met, they fell in love. They had a little baby girl that they named Fortune. But because the very first race laws were actually crafted in order to deal with exactly that situation, white women marrying and having mixed race children with with black men, enslaved black men, um, they wanted to, they they just didn't know what what to make the status of the child. So they instituted these laws. Originally, what they said was white women who do that will then be enslaved themselves to their Mm. husband's master until their husband's death. But, But the children were enslaved in perpetuity. Um, and so, but, you know, a few years later, they realized, oh, look what we've done, because now masters were forcing their enslaved women, um, their indentured servants to marry inde- enslaved black men and, and have mixed race children in order to get free labor in perpetuity. So they said, oh, we didn't mean to do that. They clutched their pearls. Right. And so um, they said, OK, never mind. Um, the women won't be indentured, won't be enslaved. Instead, they'll be indentured. And, and then in like five or six different iterations mm. of laws came about to the point where when, when, um, uh, when Fortune was born, it was the case that if a woman married a black man and had children by that man, her child would be indentured for 31 years. Mm. If it was a white man, it would be an out of marriage. It would be 21 years. So that was the deal. And under that, um, under that iteration of the law, uh, fortune was indentured for 31 years and all of her descendants for three or four generations after that were also indentured. And my family was related to them. Um, eventually they came over to, they moved over to, uh, Virginia where they were free after, I mean, by about 1745, they were free 1740, Mm. 1750s, at least they were free. Um, and I remember when you and I were driving through, you know, we did the Lynchburg revival together, uh, you know, and and then we were driving through that land and it was very heavy. You were processing like what this land means to you. And that I, I remember was really, you know, special to, to be with you in that moment. But also, you know, me trying to imagine everything that's going on in your mind and heart. And in many ways, like as you look at your family and you read this book, Fortune, you see how much of the evils of American racism and white supremacy, like your family endured almost every aspect of that, right? Exploited labor, abused bodies, manipulated reproduction, like uh, sexual abuse, all of that, right? And um and, and in, in, in some ways, I think that that's what, you know, I think a lot of us have read books on history and racism and, you know, what we did to, to people, but then to, to have names and faces in your family tree um, even brings it closer to home, right? Yeah, it really, really does. I think that that's the thing is that in the writing of this book, 
two things may happen to me in a major way. One, I began to see the thread, the threads that all together, that, that the ways that these laws not only literally enslaved us, literally um, prevented us from entering different job sectors and then kind of limited our imagination about where we could actually work and live and, and thrive. But also I saw the resilience, the strategies of resilience that rose from these, these I mean, every generation had a strategy of resilience from, from Fortune's, Fortune's um, daughter, Betty, <laughs> is actually noted in the tax records as having refused to, to pay the extra black tax that was leveled on free black women in particular. And she came out and said, I'm not paying. And they actually noted that. I don't know. I imagine that she probably came out with a shotgun because that was, that was, you know, back, back in the day. But, and I can't imagine that, that the tax collector would have gone away without it, but who knows, maybe, maybe so. But bottom line is that that lady was, was rough. <laughs> and also when you dig further, she never paid those taxes, but not only her, there was also Leah who, who survived multiple losses of children. I mean, all the way to, to my great grand, um, my great, great grandmother, Martha, who died um, in childbirth, um, birthing my grand, my great grandmother. Um, it's just, and, and all because of medical racism, no hospitals would take black women, uh, black people at that time in South Carolina. And also employments, you see the, the cap on employment that was placed a literal cap um, af right after the end of reconstruction in South Carolina, they, they outlawed black people working in any other industry, but two industries, um, the fields or the households, domestic work, which is exactly where we were in slavery. So they were trying to reinstitute slavery right after the end of reconstruction. So that's what moved my great grandmother, Lizzie to move North, um, mm. and look for a better life in Philadelphia, but in Philadelphia, they found redlining. They found eminent domain where they stole houses. They found the drug wars eventually that eventually killed my uncle and, and also had a hand in killing my grandmother. Um, and we find that we, I, we talk about that in the very last chapter where we talk about healing and forgiveness. And so this is, it's been an epic journey for me, just the writing of the book as all these these ties have come together, but ultimately the book is a, is a call and a cry for truth-telling and for That's right. Yeah. Well, just in case uh, folks are, are tuning in uh, and, and don't know who I'm talking to, the, the, first of all, this is Shane Claiborne and the name of the show is Across the Pond. I'm talking to Lisa Sharon Harper uh, about her new book, Fortune, which is just hot off the press. And I, uh, it's, it's an incredible book that had years and years of research and looking into her own family line and how it represents so many of the racial injustices that uh, way too many people experienced in America and around the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we jump back in, Lisa, one of the things that I love in your book is, and, and one of the reasons I always like hanging out together is because you know the struggle and how ugly humanity can be, but you also are filled with hope. And your family, you were kind of getting into that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, are, they are powerhouses. I didn't know your mom was, you know, such a legendary organizer. I mean, she, she met, uh, you know, so many of the folks in the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and was organizing in Philadelphia and beyond mm -hmm. Philadelphia. But, um, you know, I, I texted you a few times that I was reading. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I've been to that place where your mom was organizing. <laughs> yeah. so maybe, and, and now you're, 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 you've got this like 
beautiful relationship with your family that in some ways it feels like it is deepened because of your book and your research. So say a little bit more about your mom and, and and that kind of hope and resilience. Yeah. You know, I mean, actually just last night we celebrated my birthday. And um, so, you know, this is is dating, dating. Well, maybe should we take that out? I'm sorry. Cause that'll date the the No, It's okay. It doesn't matter. It's okay. 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 So birthday, by the way, thank you. (laughs) So last night we celebrated my birthday and the family was there and, um, and they asked me to read portions of, um, of fortune. And um, actually my auntie Najuma on the week's side, she read part of the week's chapter. Um, that's chapter five. And, you know, to see how that blessed the many weeks family members was, it was pure gift mm-hmm. to me. And it really has even the process of interviewing my family for the book has been um, a process of healing for all of us. I think that there's been revelation. People have had ahas. Oh, that's why things are the way they are because of this thing that happened back then. And then me, of course, connecting the stuff that happened to them and their lives with the deep history, right? Like maybe that all came from how horrible slavery was in the Caribbean, how horrible slavery was in South Carolina um, for my mom. My mom, the writing of my mom's chapter was... I mean, actually really hard um, because, mm-hmm. you know, she was able to give me days of interviews and I had to figure out what parts of the story to tell, but there was also hard because of the emotional, mm-hmm. the emotional depth and pain in her story. Um, and when you read her chapter, Sharon chapter six, you'll understand what I'm saying, but, but it was also amazing, right. To, to read about, or to, to hear her say, and then write about, her relationship with Stokely Carmichael, who later um, changed his name to um, Kwame Torre, and um, and you know, and, and and to really reflect on Black Power, what does that mean? He got really villainized because of that, but actually, what he was really calling for was something that people of African descent had never had up to that point, never in the history of America, the ability to self-determine the ability to exercise agency in this world, to shape the world that we live in. Because even then, and and when he did that, it was the summer of of 1966. It was only one year after passage of the Voting Rights Act. So everything hadn't really fully kicked in yet. They didn't really understand what it meant to live under the protection of the Voting Rights Act. But now we understand we've had 50 years since then and the revoking of the, of the Voting Rights Act, both in, yeah. in, in 2013 and then also with the recent ruling by the Supreme Court on, uh, on a case in, in Texas that basically eviscerated the whole thing. So now we really don't have protections. Right now, we don't have protections, the protections that we had with the Voting Rights Act. We are as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, than we were before the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Why? Because we think we're good because we've lived for 50 years, but we're not. So we're not actually fighting in the way that they did back in 1964 that got us the act. So we are we are really right now, this story is apropos for right now. It's needed right now. We need to understand how we got here in order to understand how to fix it. And we must fix it soon. Otherwise, America as a nation won't just go back to Jim Crow. We're actually already there. We're already, 19 states have passed 34 voter suppression laws just in the last one year. 
And when we look at um, gerrymandering, just not the laws, but the gerrymandering has been happening all over the nation. So it's not just about history. The book is about how we're going to get the future right, too. And we, we you know, we can't get uh, we can't get our future right if we don't tell the truth about our history and really address some of those wounds. So a lot of the work that you're doing that we do together, Red Letter Christians, but you're doing, you know, now within with, with Freedom Road is about uh, trying to change the narrative and and um, be great to hear, you know, for folks to know a little bit more about Freedom Road and how they can join it or go on one of the pilgrimages or, you know, see mm-hmm. some of your other webinars and things. Well, it's funny. Freedom Road, and we exist in order to shrink the narrative. We're a consulting group. We also do coaching. We have an institute. We have a writer's group that actually is helping to change the world by writing a new world. Um, and we also do pilgrimages. So next year, next summer, we're doing a pilgrimage. I think now we're up to 175 people going on this pilgrimage all at one time, which is incredible. Um, and maybe even actually up closer to it, to 200, going on a pilgrimage uh, in South Carolina to investigate the, the, the entry point of people of African descent, the degradation, and then the rise of Black bodies on U.S. soil and Black minds and Black souls and, and the contributions that we made to what America is. So we'll be going on that five-day pilgrimage next, next summer. That is closed. That that group is, is closed. But people can always contract with us to custom design a pilgrimage for their group. Um, or better yet, I mean, why don't you just um, come and join some of our webinars, just even as an entry point. We have at the Institute, we have webinars and growth communities that help to go deeper on issues of race, gender, and all issues of justice. Yeah. And I, I want to um, talk about your move back to Philadelphia because I've, I've visited you in New York. I visited you in D.C. We've um, you've lived a lot of different places, but you returned to Philadelphia and it's really special, you know, where you're living and why you're living there. So um, say say a little bit about how you ended up back in Point Breeze in South Philadelphia. I was researching chapter two of the book, The Lawrence Family, which lived in South Car- South Philadelphia. Um, and uh, I was looking for trying to find the area that my great grandfather, Hiram Lawrence, lost to eminent domain. He used to own a block of homes in the Elmwood area of, um, of Philadelphia, but he lost it because the city claimed the land and gave him pennies on the dollar for it. Hmm. He actually died later that year, I think, as a, of a broken heart. Um, my great, his his wife, my great grandmother, Ella Fortune. Um, moved into a, a home just about two blocks from where I'm sitting right now. My grandmother lived in a home one block from where I'm sitting. And Lizzie, my other great-grandmother, lived also a block from where I'm sitting. So I said, you know what? Let me see what the houses are like in that area, what, what the prices are like, because I found myself on a Zillow map and I thought, whoa, you know, this is actually affordable. Um, and And I found a home. And I really felt drawn here. I felt drawn here by my ancestors. I, it really was thick. It was, it was clear and it was illogical. I was like, I really wanted, I wanted to be in DC, but I felt drawn back to Philly. And since I've been here, it's been healing. I've come back to the land where my ancestors lived for 70 years. Um, there's been a real healing as I've understood their struggles by understanding the land more. And when you look at um, what they went through. They went through urban renewal, which is the, the releasing of a neighborhood by a city, basically saying, um, you know, just let, let it rot. It's basically the declaration, let it rot. And when it mm-hmm. rots to the point where, 
where um, there's nothing left, then we'll rebuild on it. Mm. So, so that's what happened to this area. I spoke at a church right around the corner from here in 2000. My grandmom, like I said, was about a block away. She had, she had passed away since then. And I looked at the houses. They were all like bombed out houses. It felt like a war zone. And what had happened here was the drug wars. It mm. literally emptied this, this area because it wasn't wars against the drug users. It was pumping drugs into this area in order to justify clamping down on it through police brutality. And that's what happened. It gutted the area. So now there are high rise, well, three story, maybe even four story homes that are growing up in this area. Um, lots of lattes, lots of dogs. And I said, you know, I have to move back because we have to reclaim this land. Mm, mm. Wow. And what folks might not know, especially folks, you know, that are listening as outside of the United States is Philly has a lot of history. You know, we've got the Liberty uh-huh. Bell and the Independence Hall, the, the Constitution, the Declaration of, uh, uh, you know, all of our historic <laughs> documents. Yeah, all that stuff's here. But what's also in Philly is a, a church history. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the um, one of the places you write about is Church of the Advocate, which was a historic church in Philly where uh, yes. organizers were able to meet, even the Black Panthers were able to meet, and they have paintings of the Exodus story uh, in um, through the, the lens of the civil rights struggle and the black liberation struggle. So those, and they also ordained the first uh, women priests uh, at the, the church of the advocate, you know? And so you look at this, the, the, the oldest AME church, you know, some of the thing, mother Bethel, all the, like there's this history of the church in Philly. And yeah. the last thing I wanted to ask you about Lisa in the last few minutes we have is how your faith, has deepened in this? Because I've read a lot of your other stuff. You know, we do a lot of organizing, trying to introduce people to to, to Jesus. You know, at Red Letter Christian, you still are, are very much an evangelical at heart. I've heard you mm-hmm. preach many times, preach with you. Mm-hmm. And um, and how, how does this deepen the way you think about Jesus and the way that you talk to people about Jesus? The way that I've, I, I understand Jesus has really transformed over the years as I've gone, as an evangelical, gone back to the scripture. I trust the scripture and the scripture tells me that this was a Brown colonized serially enslaved people group. That was actually an Afro Asiatic people. Um, There's only one person of European descent who has a speaking role in the entirety of scripture. And that's Pilate. He's the only person of European descent. Now by now, obviously Paul lived in Rome, but he was not Roman. He was Hebrew. He was of that brown colonized Semitic um, people. And so when we, when I understand Jesus and the scripture now, I'm always looking at it through that lens of what, what might these people have meant by this in the state of colonization, in the state of slavery, in the state of having agency taken away. When we know on the very first page of the Bible, the question of agency is, is at the climax of Genesis 1 when God says, and let them have dominion, that's actually, and let them have agency and let them have, have the ability to steward the world. So when we take away agency, when we take away um, uh, ability to exercise dominion through colonization and slavery, we are at war with God. So now I very much understand the gospel itself as being um, the good news that God, the king of the kingdom of God has come to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. That's why I was led to write 
fortune because what this is is a record of how we've been at war with God on earth and what it will take to repent. Well, y'all, it has been an incredible time with Lisa Sharon Harper and the name of her book, the, the newest book that Lisa's written is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. So check it out and you can follow Lisa uh, she's very active on the social media. She's on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And are you on TikTok? I don't know about that. We're not. We're, get, we're going to be there by the end of the by the end of the year. We're going to be on TikTok. <laughs> and f- follow Freedom Road, and you can see lots of her stuff at Red Letter Christians too. We've got a number of her sermons and conversations that we've done, town halls that we've hosted. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this this is Shane Claiborne, and the name of the show is Across the Pond. I hope that this conversation will lead with Lisa will uh, invite us all to dig deeper into our own histories and, um, and to also think about how we can repair some of the wounds that racism and white supremacy have had on the church and on the world and even on real image bearers, people and families all over our country and all over our world. Thanks for joining us. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about Red Letter Christians, please visit redletterchristians.org for resources, upcoming events, and to connect with other people who are passionate about Jesus and justice. You can follow Shane Claiborne and Red Letter Christians on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you'd like to support our work with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly sustainer of the movement, please visit our website and click on the red donate button. Thank you for tuning in.